Are we all really God's children? Hello, I'm Pastor Eric Targe. I'm excited to continue a series tonight through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're focusing on Romans chapter 8 in a series called Saved, Sealed, and Delivered. And tonight we're looking at Romans 8 verses 12 to 17, where I think we're going to answer this question, or at least seek an answer to the question, are we all really God's children? But before we, we launch into that, I think it's important that I give a little bit of a caveat, what, we're, what questions that we're not answering. Tonight, we don't seek in this text in Romans 8, 12 to 17, to, to answer the question, are all humans of equal value? That's, that's not what I mean when I'm asking, are we all God's children? Another text answers that question. Uh, it's actually a foundational text uh, to God's word the Bible, it's Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 27 says, everyone, male and female, was created in God's image without, without distinction. It's actually something that makes Christianity, it makes Judaism, it makes uh, the God of the Bible distinct from all other religions of its time. You see, other religions would say that to be made in the image of God, you had to be a king, or maybe you had to be of the aristocracy or the oligarchy. Uh, and then in, in some more benevolent societies, you were in the image of God if you were a land-owning male of a certain ethnicity. But to to have everyone be made in the image of God, to have everyone be uh, worthy of equal dignity and value, that is actually peculiar to the Bible because we recognize that all humans are made in the image of God. You see, if, if you are joining with us tonight and you would say, hey, I take pride in my, my race as being superior to other people or my gender as being superior uh, to, to another gender, can I, can I tell you that one of two things are happening here? Either you are completely distorting and misunderstanding the message of the Bible or we are not of the same religion because this is, this is foundational to us. But that's not the question we're, we're seeking to answer in Romans 8. We're not saying, are we all of equal value? Rather, the question of, are we all God's children is seeking to, to answer the question, are all religions, are all spiritualities, of the same value. You see, that's something that in today's culture, we, we've kind of taken as a given. One of my favorite songs uh, uh, is the prayer. Perhaps you've heard it sung by Andrea Pacelli and uh, Celine Dion. It's one of my favorite songs. Recently, it was redone by Natalie Grant and Danny Gokey. And when, when they sung it, they added a little line. Everyone always adds a line when they do this. They sang, they, they prayed in the prayer. They said, we pray for a world where pain and sorrow will be ended. And every heart that's broken will be mended. Good stuff. We should be praying that. If you are a believer, I pray that you would pray that for our broken world. Our world is so broken in regards to feelings of superiority, in regards to just the, the evil we see around us and disease that's spreading around us. But they continue. And they, they pray that we'll remember that we are all God's children reaching out to touch you, reaching to the sky. You see, that's, that's the claim, and it's often embraced in our culture, that we're, we're all reaching out, reaching out from different angles and perspectives, but none of us has actually met you, God, the God that we're reaching out to. And so we're in the dark, just trying our best to, to reach to the sky. 
this uh, philosophy is not only found in, in music, but it's actually found in our television shows. Uh, a good sitcom that was out recently that just really hit the nail on the head for where our culture is at, uh, it just finished, was Michael Schur's sitcom, The Good Place, where basically the, the protagonist of the show, Eleanor Shellstrap, lands in The Good Place. And when she gets there, one of the first questions that she asks uh, this sort of angel who's there is, so... In the end, who was right? To which he responds, well, you, you know, everyone was a, a little bit right. The, the Jews, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Christians, they all guessed about 5%. Now that's not new to, to Michael Schur, and it's not new to Danny Gokey and uh, Natalie Grant. Rather, this actually comes, this idea of, that they're proposing has a name to it. It's called pluralism. Pluralism says that anyone who makes a claim on absolute religious truth is prideful, disrespectful, and exclusive. Because we're all just reaching out in darkness. Uh, perhaps one of the most famous parables, the famous stories of, of pluralism is an old Indian parable that tells of six blind men who go to experience an elephant for the first time. It was made famous by the American poet John Godfrey Sachs, who wrote a poem called Six Blind Men of Indostan. You see, in, the, in, this, in this telling of the story, basically what happens is one man grabs the tusk of the elephant and says, ah, an elephant is, is like a spear. Another man grabs the trunk and says, an elephant is like a snake. The other one, the leg, and says it's a tree. The other one, the tail, a rope, an ear becomes a fan. And then the final uh, blind man leans against the elephant and says, ah, an elephant is like a wall. And John Godfrey Sachs closes his poem saying, And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. You see, this is the, the view of pluralists. And some might say, oh, wow, that's, that's really respectful to all religions because it says every religion gets a, gets a little bit right. But, but in actuality, it's quite disrespectful and quite extremely prideful. Uh, notes one theologian named uh, Norman Geisler. He says it's interesting when he was examining this, he said it's interesting that everyone is blind except the pluralist himself. He can exempt himself and therefore he can make an absolute religious truth claim and say, oh, well, well, this is the truth. You see, friends, all religions make truth claims. Everyone claims that they know the truth. And so it's, it's not about how do we be respectful to all the different truth claims, but rather examining the truth claims and saying, which one holds true and which is most beautiful? Friends, tonight, I think as we, as we look at Romans 8, 12 to 17, that we are going to see that the truth claim about who God's children really are is found to be most consistent and most beautiful when we look at the God of Christianity presented in Romans 8. Here, here's the truth claim I think we're going to see tonight. You see, in, in Romans 8, we see the, the answer to the question, are we all really God's children, is no. No, we're... We're not all God's children. You see, God's children are adopted. Follow along with me, and I think you'll, you'll see where I'm going. We're going to see tonight in, in Romans 8, uh, 12 to 17, that God's children, God's adopted children are debtors. They're sons, 
and their inheritors. And I know for some, that's gonna kind of freak you out. You're not gonna like each of those words and it should give you a little bit of dissonance. But I think as we go through this, we're gonna see the beauty of what he's saying. So look with me again at Romans 8, 12 to 17. We're dealing right now with this idea that God's adopted children are debtors. And let's look at verse 12. He says, so then brothers, and that word brothers there, you're looking at that word brothers, could really be interpreted brothers or sisters. It's a gender neutral word. It's talking about siblings. It's a family word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, I think for for most of us, when we deal with that that, that first point, that God's adopted children are debtors, we're going to get a little bit freaked out, right? Whether you would say that you're a Christian or you would say you're not a Christian. Uh, If you're you're not a Christian, you're just a spiritual person, you're seeking, you're going to say, who are you to tell me that, that I have a debt? But if, if you were with us last week, you would, you would have seen that we talked a little bit about, and you can listen to that message. We were talking about that if we truly believe in justice and we don't believe that justice and ethics and morals are arbitrary, that we, we have to say that there is a God of justice and justice is not merely cultural. Therefore, we, we must pay a debt for every injustice uh, that we do. Otherwise, we're just choosing which things uh, are worthy and which people are worthy to have justice visited on them. And the good news for for those of us who are in Christ, for those who put their faith on Christ, is that Christ died for that debt, for that debt. That debt has been removed. So if you're a spiritual person tonight, I hope that that helps. But if you're a Christian, then you're saying, then what do you mean that we are debtors? I thought you said Jesus died for that debt. Well, he did. Romans 8.1, we talked about last week, said there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. So perhaps the issue here is maybe more with the word. You see, uh, the ESV, that's the translation we're using tonight, is is borrowing from the King James Version, an older version of the Bible. Uh, and and, and it's some of the newer translations phrase it a different way. You see, this, this whole text that we're looking at right here in this section is, is kind of speaking, we need to understand, is speaking not to the individualistic society that we're used to here in the United States. No. This text is speaking more to a, a society that's very collectivist. Personally, I, I came from New York, and when I came from New York— to Chicago, I didn't think twice about it. I didn't think about, I mean, I was sad to leave my family, but there was no family obligation. There was no need for me to take over the family business. Maybe you grew up in a collectivist society, and so this is beginning to, to make sense to you. You see, what, what, what this word might be better translated as is obligators. You see, Paul is saying, we have a new obligation. We have a new family obligation. Friends, you have that kind of debt. And when it comes to the flesh, you have no debt anymore. That debt is completely gone. Another way you you might think about it, if this whole idea of collectivism just throws you off, you might think of it as the, the flesh being a bad boyfriend that you owe nothing to. You see, the the flesh abused you. The flesh used you. The flesh lied to you and, and caused you heartbreak. And so... You owe that boyfriend nothing. Good riddance. Paul is saying that that you're married now. You're married to God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And he's lavishing you with life 
and love. Your old boyfriend thinks only of himself. Your husband, on the other hand, is, is giving you a life worth living. All your happiness you owe to him. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, stop flirting with the flesh. You owe it nothing. You see, the, the flesh will, will never make you happy. It'll only divide you, making you hostile. I mean, what does the flesh do? It tells you, it, it tells you if I don't get my way in this situation, I'll walk out. The flesh says, if I, if I never possess that longed for thing, I can't be happy. It says, if I don't get an apology from that person who hurt me, I'll explode. Let's be real. We often talk in America as though the majority religion of our country is Christianity, but that's, that's just not true. The, the majority religion of our country is the flesh. The majority of religion of our country is, is self-eanity. We have an, an overwhelming duty to self ethic in our country. Uh, when, I, when I first came to Chicago that summer, I, I went home and was looking for a job. And I was, I was grateful to get a job working for a family friend who was a divorce attorney. And while I was there, my job was basically to go through old files, help them sort out and get rid of files that they no longer needed to, to keep for their archives. And can I tell you, one of, the, one of the strangest lines, it's a line that I saw over and over and over again in, in different affidavits and different files was, I owe it to myself. I owe it to myself to follow my dream. I, I owe it to myself to grow as a person. I owe it to myself to try something new, to be happy, to be fulfilled, to reach my maximum potential. <laughs> you see, the flesh makes us hostile. It divides us from one another. And like last week we talked about it, it, it divides us from God. Last week, we saw that, that in the flesh, it, it causes us to ask all sorts of questions that divide us, like how far is, is too far and how can I cut corners and, and still be a Christian? And do I really have to apply that part of the Bible to, to, my, to my life? You see, the, the flesh does us no good. And so our, our only obligation, Paul says, look here, our only obligation to the flesh is to kill it. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's not saying like, oh, okay, now if you mortify your flesh, if you really kill all of these sins, then you can earn salvation. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying if you want to live in the fullness of what it means to be in this family, if you want to enjoy the fullness of it, you're going to put to death the deeds of the body. The only obligation you have to the flesh is to kill it. One of my favorite uh, books by C.S. Lewis is The Great Divorce. In The Great Divorce, there's this scene where C.S. Lewis supposedly is, is in heaven and sees a man who takes a bus from hell to heaven and has a lizard sitting on his shoulder. And the man with the lizard on his shoulder, uh, kind of a ghost of a man, decides to leave and go back to, to hell, uh, take the bus back to hell. And an angel comes up to him and says, uh, where are you going? He replies, he says, hey, thank you for your hospitality. However, this, this lizard on my shoulder, you know, he just, he won't be quiet. He just keeps yapping uh, and his stuff just, just won't do here. To which the angel replies and says, would you like me to make him quiet? And so the man thinks about this and he says, oh, yes, that, that'd be quite nice. And the angel says, okay, I'll kill it. 
To which the man freaks out. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't, <laughs> that seems a little bit too far. I thought you were just going to make him be quiet. I didn't realize you were going to kill him. The angel says, listen, this is the only way. You got you to kill that lizard that represents the flesh. We got we to gotta kill it. And he says, oh, I don't know. You know, I didn't get enough sleep. And he says, no, no, no do, do it now. He says, well, maybe, maybe another time. I'll come up. And he says, no, all moments are right now. You got to kill the flesh. You got to let me kill the lizard. May I kill it? May I kill it? Is the question of the angel. And so the man finally gives in. He says, fine, just do it fast. And it's at that point, the flesh speaks. The lizard of the flesh speaks. I want to read to you what he says. The flesh, the fleshly little lizard pipes up and says, be careful. He can do what he says, referring to the angel. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a a sort of, you'd only be a sort of ghost not a real man as you are now. And C.S. Lewis is looking on and seeing this ghost of a man. He doesn't understand, the lizard says. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit, I've gone sometimes too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You may say, quite innocent. Thankfully, where that story goes, the angel does kill that yapping lizard. And friends, that's what we have been granted to us in the spirit. The ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh. One of my favorite uh, theologians was a Puritan named John Murray. John Murray uh, wrote about this very thing, saying, uh, saying this. I want to read it to you. He says, the believer's once for all death to the law of sin does not free him From the necessity of mortifying sin in his members, it makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. You see, in in the spirit, we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. This isn't how we are saved, but it's how we truly live. And so friends, in this way, we are debtors. We have an obligation through the spirit to cut ties with that bad boyfriend, that yapping, lying lizard, of the flesh so that we might know the fullness of life. This is our debt and what a glorious debt it is. What a lovely obligation. We are debtors. And here's the second thing. We are sons. Keep reading with me. I know this one's a little confusing. God's adopted children are debtors and sons. Now look with me. I am in verse 14 to 15. And here's what Paul says. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, as I was talking this, uh, this text through with some of our staff, I kind of wanted to hear what different people had to say. Someone, uh, someone on the staff said to me, they said, you know, I, I like your outline, but the word sons just feels rather exclusive. Do you have to use the word sons? Like why not say sons and daughters? That might be a little bit, a little bit more embracing. But the problem with that, I I, I was ready. I was like, yeah, that, that actually does sound like a good idea. But the problem here is that Paul is choosing the word sons. He's not choosing the word children. In fact, as we go a little bit further, we're going to see in the, the next two verses, in verses 16 and 17, Paul does use the word children. 
twice. But here it's the gendered son. And it's important to note that because we, we need to understand that Paul is speaking to, to Roman society. And in Roman society, sons were considered of a higher class and of greater value than daughters. They would even get a, a greater inheritance. This was a, a patriarchal society. You might even know this. It might be helpful to know that if, if, if in this society, a wealthy man had all daughters, he didn't have any sons, it would be typical for him to adopt another man, even a man that was older than him, to take his inheritance so that his name would be carried on to another generation. If a poor man had only daughters, it was thought by Roman society to be wise to take a newborn daughter out into the desert and leave her there to die of exposure and then try again for a son. You see, in this patriarchal society, to be a son came with great honor and privilege. And so I imagine some are sitting there and they're thinking, oh, great, see, Paul is upholding the patriarchy. But friends, that could not be further from the truth. Paul is not upholding the patriarchy. Rather, he is overthrowing it. <laughs> you see, what, what, what Paul is saying here when he, when he speaks earlier about being brothers and sisters in this family and then uses the gender-neutral children and then applies sons here, he's saying just what he says in Galatians 3.28, that in Christ, there are no male and female. We are all of equal standing. All who trust in, in Christ will get everything a son would get. And what is that? Well, first off, he makes the point that it's a fear removed. You see, we, we no longer have the, the fear of, of slaves. What does that even mean? Well, a slave can be fired. A slave can be abandoned. In this society, which was an egregious society, a slave could be killed and the slave would have been seen as property. You see, when, when Paul is writing, though, to this church, we need to understand that Christianity throughout Rome was known as a peasant religion, said to be made up of mostly slaves and women. Th this is who Paul writes to. You see, Christianity, because of, of this understanding of the miraculous gift of adoption by God, transformed the idea of adoption into what we know it as today in society. You see, no longer is it thought about preservation of your name primarily. Today, we think of adoption as benevolence. You see, in, in, in these days, in the, in the days of the early church, Christians were often thought of as nefarious people because these little girls that would be left out to exposure, uh, the church was known for going out into the desert in the middle of the night and rescuing these children and bringing them into their families. People were, were wondering, what are they doing with these babies? Why are, they, why are they taking them in? And friends, it was for this reason, because they had experienced adoption. They knew the glory of what it meant to be called sons of God, to be accepted in every way into the family. You see, that, that, that's how Christians were then, and that's how we should be now if you've been adopted. We should be on the front lines of adoption. Even here at the Moody Church, we've said that that's a priority for us. And for that reason, we have a, a Hope for Kids ministry where you can go to our website and learn about adoption. We even have an adoption fund uh, to help you adopt and help you uh, to grow in your understanding of what it means to be a part of adoption because we were adopted. You see, the, 
the fear was removed and a relationship was created. It's not just that the fear was removed. It's that now we, we have a relationship. Notice what he, he says. We have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. It's something completely different. Adoption is sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I love that. I love that word, Abba. You see, Abba is a, is a home word. It's a word that would have been used only in the home uh, among those who were part of a family. I don't know about you, um, but if you, are, uh, if, you have peop- if you have children in your family, likely you call those children by a number of names. I know my daughter, her name is Cecilia Magdalena. I regularly call her Cece or Cece Malene or Nena or Mija. She responds to a thousand different names. And she also calls me names. She calls me Dada. She calls me Dada. And she calls me daddy. But imagine with me for a moment. You see, that's the relationship we had. Imagine with me for a moment that she came up to me and said, hello, Pastor Tarsh. I would be crushed. Now she's two years old, so I'd also be a little bit impressed. But I would also be kind of crushed. I mean, that's not the relationship I want to have with my daughter. Yes, I want to be her pastor. Yes, I want to be her spiritual leader. I want her to, to, feel, uh, to feel that I can be someone who can speak Christ into her life. But it's... It's, it's, it's not what I've granted to her. You see, sometimes in Christianity, what we do is we build a reverence that is actually irreverent. You see, it's not reverent to erect barriers of icy formality that Jesus tore down. Rather, it's pious rebellion. We call out to God, friends. If you are in Christ, you can call out to God as Father. And you can mean it with the hominess that Jesus used when he called out to God as his father, because it's in him. It is that we are united to him that we're able to do this. We are sons in the son by the spirit. Fear is gone. I mean, this, 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 this whole thing has so many implications that I would, I would hate for us to meet, to, to miss. But listen, it, what it basically means is if, if we're saved by this relationship, if we're saved by being adopted as sons, it means it's, it's, it's not about our feelings. And not only is it not about our feelings, it's not about our thinkings. You see, often in Christianity, there's this kind of spectrum right? We have this spectrum where uh, people will say that, okay, yeah, if if I'm really saved by if if I really feel a love for God. And others will say, I'm saved if I think the right things about God. And the feeling people, the moment they're not feeling it, all of a sudden they begin to say, maybe I'm not a real Christian. And the people who are all thinking based, the moment they have a little bit of doubt, they say, maybe I'm not really in Christ. But the glory of the gospel is that we are not saved by our thinking or our feeling. We're saved by a relationship. One of my favorite quotes by a Puritan was a Puritan named John Owen. Now the Puritans were often thought of as kind of uh, very serious and stern people, but that could not be further from the truth. I'd encourage you to, to read some of the English Puritans and you'll find that they are just overflowing with joy and love. And here's what John Owen said. John Owen said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Friends, that's the the good news we now have as sons. 
we can know that if you have put your faith in Christ, that he loves you. And we can do him the kindness of believing him for that. Even when we're not feeling it, even when we struggle with doubt, we can rest and know that we've been adopted. You see, God's real children are adopted debtors. They're adopted sons. And one more thing I want us to see tonight. God's adopted children are inheritors. One of my favorite uh, Motown songs by The Temptations was uh, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Now, the, the words, the, the chorus is, is quite sad. The instrumentation is beautiful, which is why I love it. But the, the lyrics go like this. It says, Papa was a rolling stone. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. You see, unfortunately, that's how a lot of people think about Christianity. That's how a lot of people think about Jesus. Jesus was a rolling stone. He went from Galilee to Nazareth to Jerusalem. Wherever he laid his hat was his home. And when he died on the cross, all he left us was alone. Jesus left us with with morals to pursue and proverbs to to put in practice. So goes this way of, of thinking. But our text tells us that's not true. In fact, even Jesus himself (laughs) tells us that's not true. Look at the text with me. Romans 8, the final section of this little section we're looking at tonight, verses 16 to 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And that's the gender neutral. Children. And if children, same word, children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What he's saying, provided that we persevere, provided that we make it through all of the anxieties and struggles of this world. Yes, we have died with Christ and we are told that provided we make it through, this is what is ours. It is an inheritance. Jesus didn't just leave us alone. He he left us with an inheritance. Now, I want to focus on a few of those. I mean, the one that probably comes quickest to mind is the idea that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And obviously, you're probably thinking, oh, fellow heirs with Christ, you're talking about the beauty of the kingdom. And yes, that's true. Praise God for that, that we inherit God's kingdom with Christ. And can I tell you, heaven will be amazing. Heaven will surpass all of your expectations of whatever it is that you can imagine. We should be longing for heaven here on earth. Uh, When it says that we're fellow heirs with Christ, the beauty of that is that it means that everything that belongs to Jesus, through him, we can say, mine. We'll we'll talk a lot more about this next week as we go further in the text, because what we're going to see there is that this is kind of a transition point for, for Paul to talk about our future inheritance. But, but, but that's not the point of this text, I don't think. At least that's not the primary point. Rather, I, I think the, the focus is on, on the first inheritance that Paul points out. You see, an inheritance can be a difficult thing. I was driving a couple of months ago and listening to NPR and they had a show on where they were talking about this idea of inheritance, especially when, when someone died unexpectedly. It was kind of a macabre show, uh, but at, at one point they were talking about the difficulty of spending 
uh, an inheritance. One man voiced his struggle. He said, I can't touch the money. It just sits in my bank, bank account. I don't want it. I want my dad. You see, no one can do that. It's impossible to, to leave yourself, to leave your presence, to leave new memories and new experiences in your will. But, but what we see in this text is that Jesus does the impossible. Look at that, that verse with me again. It says that first, yes, we are fellow heirs with Christ, but first we are heirs of God. You see, friends, if you are in Christ, you don't just inherit God's kingdom. You inherit God himself, which means we get to be with Christ right now. This is why Jesus says in John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I will go, I will send him to you. He's talking about the, the Holy Spirit. And last week we saw in Romans 8, verse 11, that Jesus now dwells in you through the Spirit. Basically, what's going on here is we see that we get what Jesus prayed for in John 17 when he prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And if you, if you look up this text, John 17, verses 20 to 21, you see that he's not talking about everybody in the world. No, it's exclusive. He's talking about those who will believe on him. You see, this is where some deathbed evangelism sometimes goes wrong. It says, well, you're going to die soon. Would you like the glorious treasures of heaven or to stay in your sin and burn an eternity in hell? To which the obvious answer is you'll take whatever the first one was. But that's not the gospel. That's fire insurance. You see, the gospel is not about inheriting an unending kingdom of treasure. It's about inheriting a relationship with an unending king. Listen, this isn't to say that, that deathbed conversions aren't true conversions, but rather that it matters what it is that you're winning people to. You see, the, the thief who, who hung on the cross didn't turn to Jesus and say, hey, uh, how can I get some of that treasure in your kingdom? but rather asked that Jesus, that Jesus would simply remember him when he came into his kingdom. You see, the, the thief on the cross was believing Jesus and asking humbly to be included even in Jesus' thoughts. And for this reason, because he wanted to continue on with Jesus, he was told that he would get what he asked for that day to be in paradise. Paradise isn't heaven in the kingdom if there's no Jesus. Jesus is what makes it paradise. If, if you have a relationship with Christ, you have an inheritance with him and you have an inheritance of him. The good news here for you and I is that it's an inheritance that, that can't be taken away. And so you can breathe 
friends, you have been adopted. Do you, do you have a will? Do you know somebody who, uh, who has one? I'm sure you've heard stories of, of people being written out of a will or someone changing their will because they were angry at a child or they gave them just significantly less for, for no reason at all. You see, in, in Roman law, it was perfectly legal to disinherit a naturally born child. If they got on your nerves, if they were greedy, if they weren't good namesakes, if they did you wrong. But it was illegal to disinherit an adopted child. You see, if you're adopted, you are adopted forever. You are a child forever. That's why Paul uses these words. This is our good news. We are debtors obligated only to Jesus and not to the flesh. We are sons secure in the Father's love. And we are inheritors granted the fullness of the joys of God now and forever. You see, adoption in in Roman society, as I mentioned before, was, was really, above all, was about the name. It was about having someone who can who can carry on your name. It was about preserving my name. This part of adoption, I I hope, is not lost on us. You see, after Jesus is is raised from the dead, and before he ascends into heaven, he says something interesting to his disciples. Uh, He says in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see, we are... Adopted so that we might have a relationship with God, yes. But if you are in Christ, you have also been adopted and discipled so that you might carry a name. Are you in Christ? Do you know him? Have you put your your faith in him? Carry the name. Make disciples. Tell your coworkers, your friends, your family about that name of Jesus and how they might be adopted into his family, how they might be given his name. Are you still seeking? Still trying to figure out where it is that, that you belong? Look to our heavenly father and put your trust in the name of his son, Jesus. And he will give you a name and an inheritance that cannot be taken away. I want to call on you right now. Do it today. Call out to God asking that he might become your heavenly father. Here's the promise. It was read before by my brother TK. He said in John 1:12, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you really want to be a child of God? Do you want to be a real child of God today? Put your trust In Jesus' name. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the gift of being able to call you that. Father, Dad, thank you for not holding yourself back from us, such broken, fleshly people. Now, Father, we are are asking that that with the help of your spirit, that we might truly put to death the deeds of the flesh.
Lord, that we might be more secure in our standing as sons and secure in your love if we have put our faith in Christ. And Lord, that we might embrace the inheritance that is ours and the inheritance that will be ours through your son. For those who don't know you tonight, who are watching along, we pray, Lord, that you might do a work in their heart now that they might be claimed by the Spirit as your debtors, your inheritors, your sons, your adopted children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.